On the screen, I have a picture of Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett, two of the most uh, wealthy people in the world. And in 2010, Warren Buffett and Bill and Melinda Gates partnered together to begin a campaign that they called the Giving Pledge Campaign. And the purpose of the campaign was to recruit other very wealthy people like themselves to pledge to give away at least half of their wealth to philanthropy uh, either during their life or at the time of their death. And as of this year, there are 158 people that have signed this pledge to give away half of their wealth during their life or before they die. And this year, there were 14 more individuals that signed the same pledge, and you'll recognize some of the names. Uh, there are individuals like, um, uh, some of the names are escaping me, uh, so prominent, uh, but, uh, and uh, some of the names are individuals like Elon Musk, and Tim Cook, who's the founder, not the founder, but the CEO of Apple. And there was another individual that was mentioned that is not as prominent. I never heard of his name before. He's the CEO and the founder chairman of an investment firm, and he's worth $2.5 billion. And this is an excerpt from his giving pledge letter that I found to be insightful. Potential is no guarantee of progress. We will only grasp the staggering potential of our time if we create on-ramps that empower all people to participate regardless of background, country of origin, religious practice, gender, or color of skin. Now, I didn't add the caps in there, but he put all in caps to emphasize this, and notice that his emphasis is to empower all people. Here's a group of 158 billionaires that have committed to give away at least half of their income to empower others. Now, the reason why these things make the news and why we are so fascinated with this notion of billionaires giving away money is that the natural human tendency is to hoard money. Isn't that right? People do not naturally want to give away money. The desire is to consolidate money. Now, today our topic is not about money, but it is about something that is very similar to money. It is about power. Some people will argue that money is power, but power is not money. And power is very similar in that we do not want to naturally give power away, but the natural human tendency is to consolidate and to centralize power. And I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 1 as we look at the biblical teaching in relationship to power and how God 
deals with or appropriates his own power. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and verse 8. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Jesus is about to go to heaven, and he tells the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit. Skip down to verse 8. But you shall receive power... When the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. If you look in your study guide, you can see that I've highlighted this. It's an insert in your bulletin. You can follow along today if you wish. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, has come upon you. The whole book of Acts is made possible because of the power that they received on the day of Pentecost. And by the way, we have no business going forth to reach others if we have not received the power. Amen? It's important that we receive the power first. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that Jesus empowered the church. Now, when you go to Acts chapter 2, when the power came upon the believers, you'll see exactly to whom it was distributed. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 in the New International Version. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came, upon, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Holy Spirit did not come upon some that were gathered in the upper room. The Holy Spirit came upon who? All. And the Bible indicates that not only were the twelve disciples there, not only the mother of Jesus and the other women and the brothers of Jesus, but in Acts chapter 1, it indicates that there were 120 individuals that were there as well. You can see that Jesus distributed the power not just to the 12 apostles, but he distributed the Holy Spirit power to the entire church that were gathered there in the upper room. You can see this in the sermon given by Peter. He quotes the Old Testament, the book of Joel, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. The Holy Spirit is given to all regardless of gender, regardless of class, regardless of socioeconomic status, and regardless of age. The Holy Spirit is given to all. Now, this is the notion of the priesthood of all believers. It's a Protestant teaching and it's found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
This is the Protestant teaching, the biblical teaching, that there is not a separation between clergy and laity. All of us have the Holy Spirit. All of us have equal access to the Holy Spirit. All of us have equal opportunity to understand Scripture. And you are not dependent on the pastor to interpret Scripture for you. I mean, come on, are we Protestants here? Right? In other words, you don't have to depend on me because I do not have a, a special access to the Holy Spirit more than you do. All of us have equal access to the Holy Spirit, equal access to the interpretation of Scripture. You are not dependent on me to give the accurate depiction of what the Bible is saying. All of you are considered to be, in a sense, priests. The priesthood of all believers. The Holy Spirit being poured out on all. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, in the King James Version, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The Bible indicates that all of us are ministers in a sense. Now, this is not the thesis of today's presentation, but I just had to throw this quote in there. And it's in your study guide. All right, this is from one of my professors at the seminary, Russell Burrell. And he expounds on the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. The understanding of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers helps eliminate artificial distinctions that have arisen between laity and clergy. Since every Christian is a minister, clergy do not have a higher standing with God than laity. Clergy prayers rise no higher than laity prayers. Wow. The pastor may function as a leader, a source of inspiration, or an organizer, but the pastor cannot and must not attempt to do the whole work of the ministry, for this is the job of the whole church. Whenever a pastor gives Bible studies, visits, makes house calls, or carries out any other kind of ministry, he is performing the work of laity and not the work of a pastor. He performs this ministry not because he is clergy, but because he is first of all a lay person. In other words, the reason why a pastor gives Bible studies is not because he's a pastor, but because he's a member. And as a member, we are all ministers because of the teaching of the priesthood of all believers. The Holy Spirit did not fall upon some in the upper room. The Holy Spirit fell upon all in the upper room. Now let's go back to this notion of power. Jesus said, I will give you power, and the power fell upon all. And this really goes back to the Great Commission found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." 
There's a lot in there. We can preach an entire sermon on there. But I want you to notice the way that the power is distributed. Jesus said, all power is given to me. And what does he do with that power? Does he consolidate the power? Does he hoard the power? What does he do with the power? As we just saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He takes the power, and what does he do? He gives the power away. He empowers the church. He empowers the body. The way that power flows in the Bible is not to consolidate the power, not to centralize the power, but the power is to be distributed and empowered. Jesus said, I have been given power. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you will receive power. The power flows through distribution and not consolidation and the hoarding of power. Now, this has huge implications as to the church structure and how it runs, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I'll let you figure out those implications. But I have news for you. The consolidation of power is not in the pastor. That's a small implication, okay? The power does not rest here. Now, I think that sometimes well-meaning saints have a misunderstanding about the role of the pastor. They say, Pastor, you decide. And I'm like, no, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a consolidation of power. That's not the way our church is structured. The body is empowered. And the body is through which the Spirit moves. This is how our church functions. It's the priesthood of all believers. Now, this is not to say that there are certain roles of leadership, but when we talk about authority and power, it is not centralized. It is distributed. Now, I'll leave it right there. Now, look at this. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20, it says, all authority is given to Jesus. Verse 19, effective witness of believers predicated upon assessing the authority of Jesus. Authority is never owned. Authority is only loaned. In the Seventh-day Adventist church, the authority rests with the body, and they loan that authority to individuals. But that term is limited. We do not exist in an aristocracy where anyone is owed. It is only loaned, and there is a term in which that loaning is up. That's the way it functions. Authority is never owned, it's only loaned. Authority is given in trust to the church. The body of believers is stewards of Christ's authority on earth. So Christ empowers the church, then the church empowers certain leaders, but that term is only a limited term, and it's only for a duration, and it's loaned. Now, this is the human tendency in reference to power or in relationship to power. The human tendency throughout history is to always consolidate power, to centralize power. You can see this in the Tower of Babel. What do they do? Consolidate, centralize. You can see in the invitation for Gideon to become a king, persistence of Israel's request for a king, the consolidation of power, progression of the early church from distributed organization to a centralized papacy. General willingness of people to abdicate personal authority in favor of a central ruler. This is the tendency of human beings to abdicate authority 
that is their God-given responsibility, and to centralize it or to pull it in a person or in an institution. That is the trajectory. Power is a lot like money. People like to consolidate it. They don't like to give it away. They like to hoard it. But you see, God's consistent, consistent response. What did God do at the Tower of Babel? He dispersed it. The confederacy of tribes under the judges, repeated dispersal of tribes throughout Israel, the priesthood of all believers in the early church, and from the Catholic Church, we have the dispersion of denominations through the Reformation and the challenging efforts to re-empower laity in the contemporary pastor-centric culture. Now, let me just pause there. Challenging efforts to re-empower laity in contemporary pastor-centric culture. We live in a time where it is a highly pastor-centric culture, even in the Seventh-day Adventist church. When you go back to early Adventism, when this church was growing exponentially, there were no settled pastors. A.G. Daniels actually commented how he hopes that it never gets to the day (laughs) when they have settled pastors because what happens is that automatically there is a transference almost unconsciously of the distribution of power from the laity to the clergy. And conveniently, the laity are like, oh, let's let the professional do it. And it's not the priesthood of all believers, it's the priesthood of one believer. And and that's what happens. And ironically enough, sometimes the best thing that can happen to a congregation is for them to lose their pastor. Now, I'm not giving any prophetic uh, implications here and things like that, but, but uh, there was a situation overseas where the Mennonite church got kicked out of a, uh, a country because of persecution and were not allowed to go back for decades, and they thought that the work had absolutely died. They went back years later and found that the church had grown exponentially. It had quadrupled because the laity said, look, if we don't do it, Nobody's going to do it. The priesthood of all believers. The tendency of power is to consolidate power, but God's consistent response is always to decentralize and to distribute power. Look at Isaiah chapter 14. This is in your study guide. And look at the words of Lucifer in the rebellion in heaven. Look at the language here. It's actually in a chiastic structure. I put it kind of there on the screen for you. It's a poetic form. Uh, It kind of goes to an apex there in the literature. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Here we see that Lucifer's motion or movement is upward. He wants more power. He wants to centralize power. 
He's not satisfied with his position, but he wants to ascend. And I have a whole host of quotations on the back, and this is just for your reference. I'm not going to read through these, but if you want some background into the rebellion in heaven, I encourage you to read Patriarchs and Prophets, chapter 1. You can find it online. I have a few references there for you. But if you go down to the rest of the page, you see that there is Patriarchs and Prophets, page 35. Not content with Lucifer's position, though honored above the heavenly host, he ventured to covet homage due alone to the Creator. The rebellion in heaven began from the motivation of an individual that wanted more power. The whole great controversy can be attributed as to at least part of the motivation of Lucifer was that he wanted to gain more power. He wasn't satisfied with his position, but he wanted to consolidate power. He wanted to be God. That was the motivation, and it broke out into an open rebellion, as you can see in some of the quotations that I have listed there for your reference. This is upward mobility, the desire to consolidate the desire to centralize the whole rebellion in heaven began because of Lucifer's appetite to gain more power. I want us to look at the contrast to this. Oh, actually, before we do that, the ascendant model, egocentric upward focus revealed in the first person singular by the speaker, Lucifer, Goals are not authorized, not ordained to such lofty achievements. Covets a position and role to which he was never called. Lucifer climbed the ladder of his dreams, and from the ladder he fell with tragic results. Lucifer's mobility was upward. It is an egocentric self-focus, and you can see that Lucifer's trajectory is up, but it ends up down. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8 very quickly, you can see the contrast between Lucifer and Jesus. Lucifer said, I will ascend into heaven. I will be like the Most High. His desire is to consolidate power. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, we see that the movement of God is in the opposite direction. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The movement of Jesus is not upward. The Bible says that he became a man Not only did he become a man, but he became a servant and became obedient unto death. The mobility of Jesus is a descendant model. It is not to hoard power, but rather to divest himself of power and move in a trajectory toward servanthood. I have a diagram here on the screen contrasting the biblical models between the biblical model and the Lucifer model. You see that the the ascendant model, the model of Lucifer, 
is dominance-oriented, and it is the desire for more power. It is to consolidate the power. The movement of Jesus is descendant and incarnational to service. This is so foreign to our thinking and understanding because we all talk about what? Upward mobility. But in spiritual matters, the Bible is indicating that it is not upward mobility. It is actually downward mobility to service. It is not the ascendant model. It is the descendant model. Now, for us to grasp exactly the nature of how much God descendant, descended, I use this in my Sabbath school class, you know, we have humans, animals, and insects, three levels, roughly, I'm not a biologist. The Bible tells us that we were made a little lower than the angels, so you could argue it's God, angels, and humanity. Jesus took two steps down. Didn't become an angel, he became a man. Now, it would be humiliating to take one step down. I love my dogs, but I would never want to become my dog. Can you imagine? But one step lower, become a cockroach. I mean, can you imagine just, <laughs> you know, it's just, ugh. I mean, this is just, I mean, I'm not, I'm not denigrating what it means to be a human, but in reality, this is talking about an infinite chasm. The chasm between God and man is greater than a human to an amoeba. This is incarnational and descendant. The trajectory of God is the downward path. Now, this has huge implications for Christians and how we view and how we look at power. The Christian perspective and the Christian approach is never to seek power, but actually to give it away and to empower others down through service. Now, people have asked the question, look, how do we ever get leadership positions? And you'll notice that in Philippians chapter 2, the trajectory of Jesus is in verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name. This is what happens. You descend to service and God calls you to a position. And if God calls you to a position... You say, yes, Lord, by your grace, I'll take it. But it's not because we are seeking it. We are seeking to serve, to empower others, and in that faithful trajectory, God calls us to service. You look at every faithful person in the Bible. David was not seeking to be king, but he was called. Elisha was not seeking to be a prophet, but he was called while he was serving. The Bible says, humble yourselves in the sight of God and He will lift you up. This is the trajectory. It is the down-up path. We are never to seek power. That is actually in the Lucifer model. 
The Lucifer model is to consolidate and to seek more power, but in the biblical model, it is to seek service and to empower others. And in that faithful line of service, God says you have been faithful, I will call you up. We go to our next text in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit, what? With me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Note, those who take the down path to service will occupy the throne where Lucifer hoped to rest. We come to our final text. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, 5, and 7. The trajectory of Jesus is not to be limited to Jesus. Let nothing be done through selfish, what does it say? Ambition. What is ambition? Selfish ambition? Seeking, in a sense, power, or conceit. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Which brings us to, why do we follow Jesus? We do not follow Jesus because he is more powerful. We do not follow Jesus because he consolidates power and exerts his authority and power on us. That is not the reason why we follow Jesus, or I should say that we should follow Jesus. But you can see that something happens. When Jesus takes the trajectory downward to service, he becomes a man and dies for us. There is something that happens within us through the revelation of who he is, and that motivates us to say, I'll follow Jesus. This is what true Christian leadership is all about. It is not exerting authority on others, but really descending to serve. And through that service, we pray that there would be a reflection of the character of God, and they will seek to follow Jesus as we seek to follow Jesus. A huge paradigm shift in terms of how the Christian views power. It is never to consolidate, but always to empower others. If you look in your study guide, the last question, is it your desire to receive the mindset of Christ today through the Holy Spirit? This takes divine grace because the natural human tendency is toward consolidation rather than empowerment. And it takes someone that has been imbued with the Holy Spirit to say, he must increase and I must decrease. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much 
for Jesus and your example for your descendant model to service. Father, we pray that by your grace that you would help us to view and to use power the same way that you have. Not to consolidate, not to centralize, but to empower others. Father, we thank you for the notion of the priesthood of all believers, that you have empowered the whole body, and we thank you that the Holy Spirit can and will be poured out on all people that desire to receive it. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.